I'd invite you to make your way to Acts chapter 14. We're going to consider several verses here in just a moment in a message entitled Life as a Disciple. In the last message, we focused on the subject of life in the Spirit from Ephesians chapter 5. We looked at verses 15 through 21. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit and to keep on being filled with the Spirit. As we live a life that is surrendered to God's presence and His purpose for us. God calls us to walk carefully as wise people and to make the most of our time because the days are evil. Understanding the will of the Lord and how He desires for us to live our lives. God fills His people with joy and we're grateful to Him for His grace in all things. Today, as we focus on what it means to live life as a disciple, I want to lay the foundation of what a disciple is, how disciples come to be, and then the outworking of what that looks like in our lives. You remember when Jesus finished his work on the earth, he was preparing to ascend back into heaven to the right hand of God the Father. He gathered his disciples together and gave what we commonly know as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, recorded in other places in the Gospels as well, and in the book of Acts. And his words are for all believers, not just for those disciples that were there that day, but for all believers in all times, directing us to what we are to be about as God's people. The imperative or the command in the Great Commission is to make disciples, Supportive of that is the going, or as we are going, we're making disciples, baptizing people, and teaching them to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded, to follow all the instructions that Jesus has given. The word disciple means one who is a learner of a teacher or a follower of a leader. So a disciple of Jesus essentially is a learner who is desiring to be more like him by following his teachings. A disciple is a follower who is looking to Jesus as the example and as the leader. Now, the pattern that we find in the Bible in the New Testament is very clear, and it remains the same today. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is proclaimed. People come to repentance and faith in Jesus They begin to follow him as his disciples. They gather together as the body of Christ, the expression of the church on the earth, and they go about making other disciples. Such is the case throughout the book of Acts and in the early church, and certainly in chapter 14, where we're going to read some verses in just a moment, that lay the foundation for what life as a disciple looks like. As a bit of background, Paul and Barnabas went to a place called Iconium, and they began to preach the good news about Jesus in the synagogue. This was Paul's pattern. He would go to the synagogue first. He would preach the gospel there. There would undoubtedly be primarily Jews, but other people who may be gathered as well. And in that area, it says that a number, a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed in Jesus. Now, anytime light is shown into darkness or good encounters evil, there's going to be conflict 
But not only is there going to be conflict, there's also going to be opposition. Great opposition arose through their ministry. And the missionaries stayed as long as they could, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord and bearing witness to his word of grace. But the pressure eventually became so great that they had to leave. And they went to a place called Lystra. There a man was healed and they preached the gospel again. Acts chapter 14 and verse 7 says, there they continued preaching the gospel. Now the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, to all who would believe. There was such great power when the gospel was brought to bear in the lives of these people that some of the people thought that Paul and Barnabas were actually Greek gods. They were amazed at what they were seeing and the evidence of what was taking place. Paul, as you might imagine, was greatly concerned that anybody would think that he was a Greek God. And he proclaims to them that there's only one God and he is the creator of all. Opposition comes again and they stone Paul and drag him out of the city and leave him for dead. Now they thought it was over and done with, but it's not over and done with unless God's finished with you. And God was not finished with him. Paul and Barnabas went on to Derby and preached the gospel and made many disciples. Now we drop down to Acts chapter 14 and verse 21. It says, after they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So let's review the New Testament pattern for making disciples because it rises clearly out of these verses in this account that we've just read. The gospel is proclaimed, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The simplicity and yet the great power of the gospel is brought to bear. People then believe in Jesus Not everybody believes, but many will believe. They believe by repenting of their sins and turning in faith to the Savior. People then are gathered together in the church with other believers, and they grow in the gospel. People in the body of Christ are strengthened and matured as they are filled with the Spirit and as they learn more of the Word of God. And then they carry out the mission that they've now been brought into as the people of God. This remains the pattern for mission and ministry in the 21st century. It has not changed at all. It is still the directive that we have as the church. So I want us to think for these few moments that we have together, what it means to live as a disciple. And let's dig a little bit further into this so that we can think about the responsibility that we have but also bring it to bear on our own lives so that we can overlay this template in our lives and really evaluate whether or not we're living as disciples of Jesus. First of all, to live as a disciple means that you are in Christ. Now I'm going to state the obvious here because sometimes we presume things that might not be the case. And today, as we think about the weakness of the church in many places, In the fact that there are many people who profess to be believers and who assent 
to certain truths. They believe certain truths, but yet their lives don't match up with it. So we'd have to ask the question if, first of all, are we in Christ? And if we are in Christ, what does that mean for how we live our lives? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 and following, Paul writes, The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith you are all sons of God. Watch this. In Christ Jesus. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. So what does the law do? The law reveals the holy character of God. And in revealing the holy character of God, it also reveals our sinfulness. The purpose of the law all along was not to save, but it was to show us our need for Jesus, our need for a deliverer. So when we come to faith, we become children of God. And to be a child of God means that we are close to God. We are in Christ and we receive special care and attention from our heavenly father. Now, when Paul references being baptized into Christ, he's speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is primarily a spiritual reference and not a water reference. The water of baptism pictures the reality of the spiritual baptism that takes place in Christ. When we are clothed with Christ and we are in him. Now, there are numerous places in the New Testament where we find this idea of being in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it means when we come to faith in him, we are adopted into God's family. Ephesians 1 and verse 5 says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So you were not a part of the family of God, but through faith, you're adopted into the family of God. What you were not, you now are. And to be in Christ means that you are accepted by God, having been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Ephesians 1 and verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So what Christ has done is he has accomplished what we could not accomplish. Our righteousness always falls short. We can never measure up to the holiness of God. But yet Christ fulfilled the law of God. He gave himself in our place. And when we come to faith in him, God justifies us. He declares us righteous in Jesus. So the righteousness of Jesus is accounted to you so that you are justified and you are in him. You are declared righteous based on the finished work of Jesus. And this comes through faith alone in Christ alone. To be in Christ means that you will experience the eternal love of God. I love the passage of scripture in Romans chapter 8 where Paul gives a, a number of examples of things that could potentially separate us from the love of God. And when he gets to the end of his comparisons of what could separate us from love of love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the answer is there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, because now you've been adopted into the family of God. You have been justified and declared righteous 
in Christ. You are now alive in God. Your sin debt has been canceled. Your relationship with God is secure. And your future is filled with promise. Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now think about how people often see themselves and where they find their core identity. We might be tempted to find our identity in our experiences or perhaps our education or the position that we've risen to in some type of vocation. We might be tempted to find our identity in our earthly financial status or some type of other success that we've accomplished. We might find our earthly identity in our appearance and how we present ourselves. But you know that the inherent weakness in finding your identity in any of those things is that circumstances change. Life changes. And when those circumstances change, if the foundation of your identity is in those circumstances, your identity is going to be shaken to the core. And I want you to know today that your identity is determined by how God sees you and who you are in him. That you are blessed as a child of God in Christ as his disciple. If you're a disciple, you are in Christ. Second, to live as a disciple means that you abide in Christ. Now we're going to move from who we are in our position and our identity in Christ to now, how do we commune with him so that we can know him better, so that we can walk with him daily, so that we can draw our strength, our power, our encouragement, and our purpose from the fellowship and relationship that we have with him. John chapter 15 and verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Jesus presents God the Father as the vineyard keeper, Jesus the Son as the vine, and we as his people As the branches. Now the symbol of the vine is significant. Because in the Old Testament. uh, God used it as a symbol for his people. Jesus taught about Israel being like a vineyard. And about the base of that grapevine particularly. There were grapevines everywhere in the land in those days. There was even a vine that was a golden vine that was set as a prominent decoration over the entrance to the temple. So when the people would come to worship and they would be approaching the temple, they would be able to look over at the top of the temple and they would be able to see that there was this image of the vine there. And it was a reminder to them that they were intended to be God's people. That's why he had given them life. And to abide means to remain in Jesus. A disciple is held securely in a permanent relationship with Christ. And abiding in Christ is a, is a close relationship. And this connection between the vine and the branches means that it is permanent, it is constant, and it is, it is a dependent connection. Meaning that the disciple abides in the teacher. I mean, I don't miss this part in John 15. 
the teacher abides in the disciple. So this means that this is not just an, an external relationship of formality. This is not just a religious connection here. But by the work of the Spirit in your life, you are in Him and He is in you. And the purpose that you have as the branch, connected to the vine, tended to by God as the vineyard keeper, is ultimately to bear fruit. Now there are any number of reasons that people might grow uh, grapevines. You can uh, use them, the leaves uh, off of them to cook them or pickle them or do any number of other things. But the main reason that people grow grapevines is in order to produce grapes. They want fruit that can be enjoyed. And in this sense, we can say that the fruit represents Christian character, such as the fruit of the spirit, God's work in us and our connection to him is to be evidenced by the fruit And Jesus says even much fruit. I love the way J.C. Ryle put this. He said, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him. To always be leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him. And using him as our fountain of life and strength and as our chief companion and best friend. Ryle goes on to say to have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and our minds and to make the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior his teaching so abiding calls for loving god spending time in communion with him loving other people and bearing fruit we don't have to complicate the christian life god's told us how we're to live And to live as a disciple means that you will abide in Christ. And then third, to live as a disciple means that you will imitate Christ. Our position is in him. Our relationship forms who we are in our character. And now our actions reveal who it is that we're following. 1 John 2 and verse 5 and 6 says, But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we're in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. You remember how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1? Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So what was Paul saying? He was saying, I'm going to give you a real life example in the here and now. And I want you to know that The pattern of my life is that I'm seeking to imitate Christ. And as I imitate Christ, you can imitate me because I want to give you a good example to follow. And the call for us is to live the Christ life. The goal of the Christian life is to be like Christ. That's the point of the whole deal. And if we miss the point of the whole deal, then we've missed what it really means to be a Christian because it means to be like Christ. We can think about discipleship in the same terms of apprenticeship. An apprentice follows the master to learn a certain skill. And as apprentices to Jesus, we're learning to live for the glory of God and to be like him. One of the verses in the Bible that has been a tremendous blessing to me and also a challenge in my own Christian formation is Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we can say emphatically that it is the will of God for every believer that we be conformed to the image of Christ. Then more and more we're growing in our in our sanctification, that we're developing in our Christian walk so that we reflect more and more what it means to be like Jesus in the image of his son. And we're also reminded in that that we've got a long way to go. And that sanctification is going to continue. We're not going to reach a point of completion in this life, but someday when we're in the presence of the Lord and it's all said and done, that will be the finish line. And 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity. He said, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men to Christ and to make them little Christ. He said, If they're not doing that, All the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. Now, how can we practically study what it means to imitate Christ? Let me suggest some ideas that are not particularly exhaustive, but they'll get you on the right path. Uh, I would encourage you to study the life of Christ in the Gospels. It'd be a good devotional exercise if you want to pattern to follow a subject to study, just to begin to read through the New Testament in the the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, and begin to make some notes about what Jesus thought and how Jesus taught and how Jesus interacted with the world and how Jesus loved those who were a part of him and how Jesus reached out to those who were not yet a part of his kingdom. Study passages of scripture in particular, like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, because in it we find the ethics of how Jesus lived his life and how he calls us to live our lives. And then I would say to you in particular, study the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. I told you Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 has been formative for me in understanding the direction my Christian life should be going in. Complementary to that has been Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, because I think in, in one way that is a description of Jesus. Because what's the primary role of the Holy Spirit? To exalt Jesus. What does the Galatians 5 say is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these should be growing realities in our lives as Christians. Christ is holy in every aspect of his life. So if you want to imitate him, be holy as he is holy. Christ is a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to imitate him, then serve others. Christ is compassionate toward people. If you want to imitate him, then demonstrate compassion for others. Did you know that Christian people, disciples of Jesus, ought to be the most compassionate people of all? In fact... We ought to be the absolute kindest, most gracious, most clearly loving people in all the world. That doesn't mean that we agree with things that are wrong or support things that are unbiblical. But it means that we're not trying to be intentionally 
disagreeable as we disagree. Could people look at our lives and the way that we interact with the world around us, and especially people who don't know us, could they look at our lives and see that there's something different about us because the very compassion of Jesus is a reality in our lives? That should be who we are. And then Christ is generous with his life. If we're going to be like him and imitate him, we're going to be generous. And the scripture says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. There was a book that was written in the 1800s by a man by the name of Charles Sheldon entitled In His Steps. Some of you probably read that book devotionally. And the basic theme is that a group of people decided that they were going to try to imitate everything that Jesus did by asking the question, what would Jesus do? Well, that sparked the movement that we're maybe more familiar with in the 1990s. What would Jesus do in the WWJD and so on? And admittedly, that movement got hijacked just a bit and it became something that was probably not all that beneficial with all the trinkets and things that came out along with it. And it was marginalized and even made fun of at times. But the basic idea remains, what would Jesus do? When you hit a a rough spot in life, what would Jesus do? When you're facing a relationship complication and difficulty, what would Jesus do? When you have a need that you have to have answered in some way, what would Jesus do? When you interact with the world around you, especially people that don't know the Lord, what would Jesus do? You see, this is a definitive question for us. If we want to imitate Christ as his disciple. And I've got good news for you. You can't imitate Christ in your own strength. This is not a try harder, do better kind of faith. This is not a make you guilty, pile on a heavy yoke in your life kind of concept. This is stepping into the freedom that you have in Christ because of who you are in him abiding in him so that you're drawing from his strength and living like him because you're in him and you're abiding in him. It's an inside-out approach. The great weakness of religion is that it's an outside-in effort. Christianity is an inside-out approach. Spirit-driven, life-evidenced of who we are. To live as a disciple means that you will imitate Christ. As I come toward the close of the message today, I want to focus on how we've tried to communicate this as a church. Uh, For those of us who are already here and also for people who might be coming in to be a part of the fellowship and are newer. Asking the question, how can I follow Christ and grow as a disciple? If you're in a church that's not even thinking about this, you probably should be somewhere else. Because this is the heart of New Testament Christianity. If if being a disciple and growing as a disciple and making disciples is not at the heart of what a church is doing, then they've missed the entire point of the mission. And what we've tried to do in recent years is to think through and communicate with people in a very clear way of what that encompasses. And that's when we've begun to talk about worship, small group, ministry, and mission. I won't go into depth in these, but I want us to think just for a moment about each. We want to lead people to be worshipers of the Lord. 
both individually and collectively as we're doing here together and at other opportunities that we have. We want to worship with our lives. And we want you to see all of life as worship, not just what you do when you come together here, but as you live out your vocation. Are you not doing that for the glory of God? Even if it's a particularly difficult circumstance, it might not be your ideal situation. Did you know that if your attitude toward it changes and you think about it as worship to the Lord, even if you're not particularly excited about what you're doing, if you're doing it for the Lord, that changes the whole equation. We want to be people who worship and we want to worship well. We want to be people who gather together and experience community. And this is the aspect of the small group emphasis that we have as a church. I was thinking last week about the things that brought us from where we were to where we are presently as the body of Christ. And there are two things that we've led with over the past almost 20 years. And that is our Bible fellowship ministry and the importance of gathering together in community to live out our faith and mission. How we've led with the tip of the spear of everything that we're doing being the gospel right here in our own community and all the way to the ends of the earth. And it's important that we gather in those small groups because we want to experience that fellowship that God intended for us. He never intended for us to live as individuals in our faith, to be isolated. And one of the great concerns that I've had as we've gone through this pandemic time of almost a year now, are those people who already saw gathering together in community as something that was expendable and not all that important and optional and not all that significant to their Christian life who perhaps have been pushed even further to the margins because of the difficulty of what we've been involved with. I'm not concerned about the core of the people who understand the value of it. You know that the core of the people who understand the value of it, they're hungry for it. They're pushing back for it. They're ready for it. And they're trying to ask these questions of how can we even now gather together while we wait until things return to some sense of what they were. And what that says to me is that's going to require us as the church and those of us who do value it and understand it, the importance of it, that we are even that much more diligent to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to draw them into community so that they see what God can do in their lives and the value of it. And then we talk about ministry. Ministry being the exercise of your spiritual gifts. Understand that when God saves you, the Spirit of God regenerates you. He seals you for the day of redemption, meaning that you're guaranteed in your salvation and that God is going to finish the good work in you that He started. He gifts you with spiritual gifts to be used in the body. There's a reason why we don't all have the same spiritual gifts. The reason we don't all have the same spiritual gifts is because we're like parts of the body where we're to exercise those gifts collectively so that the entire body functions properly. And we want to encourage you to discover and exercise your gifts in ministry to the Lord. We're only as strong as our weakest link. And we want you to find the purpose God created and saved you for so that you can minister for him. And then finally, it's mission. I've already mentioned it, referenced it, but missions basically living out your faith and sharing it with others. We're, we think about it immediately as being only the ends of the earth cross-culturally. 
among unreached people groups, and it is absolutely that. In fact, I think the proper definition of mission uh, would lean in that direction, but the practical application of it can be broader than that as we live out our faith in our local context as well. And we want you to be about the mission of God because that's who we are as a church. Worship, small group, ministry, and mission. Life as a disciple right here in the place where we live and the place that God has called us to. And I think our heart of hearts would be that we follow Christ and we grow as his disciple. That's what New Testament Christianity is all about. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. We're about to close out the service and we've come now to a time of considering what we've heard. Uh, you've heard the pattern that was laid out in the early church in the book of Acts and the work of those missionaries. We've thought about how this applies to us individually as we're in Christ, we abide in him and we desire to imitate him. And if you are a Christ follower and uh, you're leaning into these things and desiring to grow more and more, uh, I want to encourage you and my prayer would be that God would encourage you. But I know enough to know that there's people listening either here in the room or online or might listen to the message later on who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. They're not a disciple. And friend, if that's the case in your life, that could change. You could repent and believe in this moment and come and follow Jesus. He'll bring you into a life of purpose and a life of blessing as God has his hand on you as his child. I wonder, would you receive the gift of everlasting life and follow Jesus? God, thank you for the time we've had together here today. It's an encouragement to be with your people. It's an encouragement to be able to lift up our voices in song, to pray, to reflect on, to think about who we are as your children. I pray that you would use us as your church to be an example to the world of who our Savior is. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.